Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that takes your word, helps us to understand it and apply it. I pray that your spirit would be here and do his good work tonight, please. And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Let's see. Oh, yeah. Exodus, book of redemption. Hopefully you're beginning to see why that is the little one word on the book of Exodus. Redemption. So let me begin tonight with a picture. Uh, Some of you are visual people like me, and so you need a picture. And last time, I drew this on the whiteboard, uh, but this time we'll just do it this way. Uh, So in Egypt, remember we have the Pharaoh, and he is holding the children of Israel hostage, and the Lord comes and liberates them and takes them out through the blood of a sacrificial lamb, and so they came out. God told them what to do, so by grace, through faith, they believed what God said, under blood, they came out. They went through the Red Sea, remember that? We saw that in uh, chapter 15, they crossed the Red Sea on dry land. God took them into the wilderness, and we saw that last week where He was teaching them to turn the obstacles they faced into opportunities for faith, and He takes them, today, He takes them to Mount Sinai to give them His law. His intention is to take them to the promised land. Remember, they, somebody promised this a long time ago to Abraham, and God is going to come and fulfill that promise. Okay, how were God's people saved here? Okay, I just went through this. By grace, through faith, under blood. Got it? Okay. So these are redeemed people in our language today. These are redeemed people coming out of Egypt. Very important to remember as we go through tonight. All right, our story so far. The people have been redeemed from Egypt through faith and under sacrificial blood. They've come to Mount Sinai, which is where God told Moses back in Exodus chapter 3, bring the people back here to worship me. Now God is going to formalize the terms, principles, and blessings that will characterize his ongoing relationship with the people, the, the Hebrew people. He is telling redeemed people how to live to be blessed. He is not telling them how to be saved through the law. The law was never put in place to save anyone. Selah. Remember that as we go through tonight. He is giving the law to a redeemed people. He is not giving them the law so that they know how to be saved. This had become quite uh, misconstrued by the time Jesus shows up. 
So he's going to formalize what's called the Mosaic Covenant or the law with, with these people. So first, God is going to say, here's what I'm going to do, and then finally, he's going to ask them for their commitment, because this is not a unilateral uh, covenant like the Abrahamic covenant. This is a bilateral covenant. This has got some ifs and some thens. All right, so this is what's happening so far. Before we get into the lesson, let's talk for just a minute about the law. What is the law? It's the Mosaic Covenant. It's key to everything about Israel, the law. It's a standard of godliness and holiness from God to the people. It governs the people's religious as well as civil lives. It governs everything about what they do. Living according to its laws and terms allows the Israelites to fully appropriate God's inheritance and enjoy its blessings. I'm going to read that again. Follow along with me. Living according to its laws and terms allows the Israelites to fully appropriate God's inheritance and enjoy its blessings. What's one of the pieces of their inheritance? The promised land. If you've been with us through this class before, you know the Old Testament. This eventually is not going to work out well for the Israelites. For them to appropriate God's inheritance fully and enjoy its blessings, they need to live according to the terms of the law. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're going to form a nation, the nation of Israel, what do you need? Well, you're going to need people. Right? That'd be a good place. I got the people. Right? They're right here. <laughs> a whole bunch of them. I got the people. What else do I need? I need a place. I need land. Well, we're going there. We're headed to the promised land. What else do I need? I need a constitution. We the people kind of a thing. I need a constitution. The law is the nation's constitution. This is how they are to live their lives under this constitution. It's an expression of God's love and grace to them. It's not to be mean and nasty. It's to show his love and to show his grace as well as his holiness. It reveals God's holy character. It reveals his standard for godly fellowship. It was and is good. We'll talk about Romans 7 later, but it was and is 
good. Why is it good? Because it comes from God. So it's good. It's an expression of His will for sanctification, present tense growth in holiness, not for salvation. So let's do a little theology. When you think about holiness, there's actually, you can kind of break it up into three parts, the past, the present, and the future. When you think of salvation, it's a one-time event. Understand what I'm saying? When the Israelites passed, right, they, they, they put the blood on their doorposts, and the next morning they came out. They were, in, in our terms today, they probably wouldn't have thought about it quite this way, but they would have moved from death to life. They would have become partakers in salvation. Well, there is a time coming for all of us, as well as our loved ones in Christ who have preceded us. They are now glorified. This is all from Romans 8. They're glorified. Well, what happens in between here and here? Sanctification. I am to grow in holiness, and what they would have said is grow in godliness, and what we would say is grow in Christ-likeness. But because God and Christ are the same, it's the same thing. So God says, here is the law to help you grow in holiness. It's not to save you. You already listened to what I said by grace, through faith, under blood, you already did that, and now I want to help you come to maturity. So I'm going to give you the law. When you think about these same categories, past, present, and future, with regard to sin, what did your salvation take care of? It took care of the penalty of sin. What does the present, what does sanctification take care of? the power of sin in your life. Eventually, when you and I are with Jesus, the presence of sin is removed. Hallelujah! No more sin to fight. The presence of sin is gone. With respect to the past and holiness, I was set apart positionally I am to progressively become what I already am, and ultimately God will see that I cross the finish line. Let me see some head nods. Got it? Okay. So when you think about holiness, it's not quite as easy as Holiness or not holiness, it's, you, it's a little bit more, um, you got to kind of break apart some of the terms and think about, well, what are, you, what are you talking about? Think about past, present, and future that might help you because where are you and I right now? Sanctification, the power of sin is what you and I are fighting. Are we fighting the penalty of sin anymore? No, Hallelujah. We're going we're gonna to fight the presence of sin because it hasn't been taken away from us yet. But it will be. 
Right now, we're positionally set apart. So imagine someone, I hate using, uh, I'll use, um, I'll use Prince Charles. King Charles, thank you. That's right, he did become king, didn't he? So when, when Charles was born, um, if the circumstances would work out, one day he would become king, right? So positionally, he was born king. Progressively, he had to learn to live as a king, right? Because one day, he became the king. Same thing happens with us. Positionally, we are set apart, different, no longer who we were, not yet who we are going to be. What happens in the middle? We are to be growing in Christ-likeness. Ultimately, the Lord will take care of making us look like Christ. Yay! That is unbelievable news. So don't get confused when we start talking about the law. Was the law for their salvation? No. It was for their sanctification to help them grow in holiness. Well, you say, all right, you've already brought up the Abrahamic covenant, then where does it fit? Great question. So the Abrahamic covenant breaks down into land, seed, and blessing. Now, the blessing is coming in Jeremiah 31, but it's not coming for several hundred years. So God puts something in place so that they know how to be blessed. And if you will do this, you will be blessed. And if you don't do this, I'm going to discipline you. So this is how he's going to begin training them up in the way they should go. We've got the land, the seed, and now the blessing is beginning to be fleshed out for us through the law. Well, what are its blessings? If Israel will walk in obedience to God's covenant, then Israel will enjoy all the freedom and fullness of her unique relationship with God. Chapter 19, verse 5. Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me. He'll make them his unique representatives or mediators in the world. So the next verse, and you will be my kingdom of priests, and they'll live out uniquely fulfilling and holy lives as his adopted heirs. He goes on and says, my holy nation, this is the message you must give to the people of Israel. They're going to live as special, they're going to live in a special relationship with God and carry out a unique function for him on the face of the earth as his mediators. As Cody shared this morning, there's share and there's our show and tell. Show and tell. Right? Show and tell. 
What are they supposed to tell? They're supposed to tell about God. Okay. So here's our big idea for tonight with the law. True freedom and fulfillment aren't found through living any way you want. They're only found through obeying God's Word. You say, well, hmm, that's, that's an interesting big idea. Have you ever stopped to think, if I'm in bondage in Egypt, and I'm all of a sudden liberated, I'm free, and God brings me to Mount Sinai, right? I'm assuming I lived under a lot of laws in Egypt, and I'm free, and now I come to Mount Sinai, and God says, great, I'm going to put you under a whole bunch of new laws. <laughs> Woohoo! So I leave, in a sense, one situation of bondage for another. But that's not God. So what is He trying to teach the people? Freedom isn't found in living any way you want. It's found in living, obeying God's Word. That's where true freedom is found. I think even Jesus echoes this, does He not? You will know the? And what will it do? I didn't make this up, I just read it. Jesus said this. You will know the truth. What's the truth? It's right here. You will know the truth, and it will set you free. So many people in those days, gosh, funny, so many people in our day think the way to freedom is to live any way I want. Follow my heart. Wrong. The way to freedom is found in obeying God's Word. That's where freedom is found. True freedom is found there. That's what he's trying to teach his people. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Obeying the Word of God has been and remains central to our lives as it was to their lives. Just works itself out a little bit differently. All right. True freedom and fulfillment aren't found through living any way you want. They're only found through obeying God's Word. Let's look at 19 through 24. In chapter 19, if you had a chance to read that, this is when the covenant is offered. And so in 20, there's a Decalogue, and then in, there's a few verses here in 18 through 21. Uh, when the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling with fear. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak directly to us or we will die. Don't be afraid, Moses answered them, for God has come in this way to test you, and so that you fear, your fear of him will keep you from sinning. As the people stood in the distance, Moses approached the dark cloud where God was. And then God begins to share with them the book of the covenant. By the time we get to chapter 24, that takes three chapters. By the time we get to chapter 24, Israel accepts the covenant. And then at the end of chapter 24, Moses and Joshua receive the covenant inscribed on stone tablets. Remember, God is formalizing and um, 
mm, writing down the terms of his covenant with them that describes and defines their special relationship. They need to, uh, they need a standard of godliness or holiness to know how to live with God. That's why God is giving it to them. Because if they don't, then how can God stay in the camp with them? He can't. And he would wind up um, wiping them out. So he says, this is the way I need you to live so that we can live together. Okay. The covenant is offered. Let's look at a few of these details. Yahweh announces the covenant in verses 3 through 6. Uh, Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, this is verse 3, and said, give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. And he refers back to how he liberated them from Egypt. And he says, now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure, etc., etc. So Yahweh announces this covenant to Moses. He comes down and he tells the people to prepare themselves. And so chapter 19, beginning in 7 and going all the way through the end of chapter 19, the people uh, need to understand what's coming, and so they have to prepare themselves for this very special event. Remember what he says about the mountain? Don't go up there. In fact, build a fence around it because if anybody even touches the mountain, it's not going to go well for you. What is God doing? He's trying to teach them, again, several concepts. He wants to teach them about holiness, particularly His. He wants to teach them about purity. He wants to teach them about separation from defilement or uncleanness. And he also wants to teach them who's their go-between, Moses. He's teaching them about a mediator standing in, in the place to mediate between God and men. Sounds like someone you and I know from the New Testament who did it better. <laughs> I'm just telling you, there's the concepts that you see revisited in the New Testament have their origin here. Here they're done imperfectly. Through Jesus they are done perfectly. Same concept. Men don't just approach God. They approach through a mediator. You and I did not just approach God. There's a mediator who's always been between us wonderfully. So God is teaching the people these concepts how do we know all these things? This covenant that Yahweh announces follows the form of a suzerain vassal treaty from the ancient Near East. All the parts to a suzerain vassal treaty are what God uses to communicate. You say, well, why would he do that? Well, if you wanted to communicate something to some people who had never heard from you exactly before, 
what are you going to do? You're going to couch it in something that they would be very familiar with. They would understand what a suzerain-vassal treaty is. The suzerain is the king. The vassal is the servant. And so this is a, basically a king-to-servant uh, covenant form. Okay? Uh, you pick. Um, at a wedding, is there a form to, well, let's say, a form to a traditional wedding? Yes. Right? Bride comes down, bride's given away, two of them go up, there's some words exchanged, there's a ring exchanged, um, you know, there's finally a pronouncement at the end. There's a form. You know what to expect without a program, right? In, in a traditional wedding. Same thing here. God's just couching these things in terms of things they would have understood. And so here's all the parts from Exodus. The only part that's left out, uh, he'll pick up in Leviticus 26. But the structure or form of this treaty, this covenant relationship, is very well established and very well known. And it's the form that God chose to express His covenant to these people. It's got some... Uh, Oh, let's see, we did that. Can you see that? Yeah, okay, that's kind of grayed out, so we've already talked about that. The Decalogue. Decalogue. Uh, it really, you think of it as the Ten Commandments. It's really the Ten Words. In Hebrew, it's the Ten Words. Um, it's His Ten Commandments not his ten suggestions. Uh, one of my profs said it covers religion, worship, reverence, time, authority, life, purity, property, the tongue, and contentment. Whew, that pretty well covers life. <laughs> so these ten commandments, these ten words are the Deca ten, Deca log, the ten words that begin this covenant. Interesting feature. Um, let's see, where do we find? Oh, oh, verse eight. Now remember, there's a little bit of explanation that goes on with these ten words. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. So what comes first in the ten words? What comes first in the Decalogue? You work six days and you rest on the seventh. Work six days, rest on the seventh. Ephesians 1.3, we've talked about this before. What does Ephesians 1.3 say? I know that's in the New Testament. Ephesians 1.3. Okay, remember, you can turn there if you'd like. That's why I said it's in the New Testament. Some of you are like, is that in the New Testament or the Old Testament? Okay, Ephesians 1.3. You have to say it loud. Stop. Did you hear 
the words. Because of Christ's finished work, you have already been blessed. Therefore, go work. It's flipped. The New Testament flips the Old Testament paradigm on its head. In the Old Testament, you worked and then you rested. In the New Testament, you're resting in Christ and therefore go and live that out during the week. That's why the day of the week changed. So if you are a, a Jewish person living in this time, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday would have been your Sabbath. For the New Testament, for the church, what's the first day of the week? Sunday. What is it? A day of worship. It's a day of reflecting on the rest that Christ has given us. Then when Monday comes, I can go to work in light of what he has done. Flipped. Oh, gosh, that was for free. So fun. So there's the Decalogue. He starts off with the ten words. Israel is afraid. They stood at a distance. What is happening to Israel? They're gaining perspective on who God is. Moses has had a lot of interaction with God, right? And Aaron. And they've seen what God has done. But have they been hearing from God? No. And they start hearing him and they are afraid. And God is giving them perspective on what's going on. They're entering into a privileged relationship. This is a privileged relationship that God is initiating toward them. There are requirements for fellowship and blessing from God. They, the Israelites, must come with an attitude of reverence. And their relationship comes with accountability. If they don't do certain things, God is going to discipline them. Okay. Any of that sound New Testament to you? You should say yes. We are entering into a privileged relationship with God. Who started it? God his idea. wasn't my idea. It was his idea. Are there requirements for fellowship and blessing? Yes. 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 They must come, we must come with an attitude of reverence. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and our relationship with God comes with accountability. Yes. I mean, he says even in some places, Paul does, he said, this is why some of you have fallen asleep. Because God doesn't mess around. We kind of sometimes can lose track of that accountability. God is not to be trifled with. He may be our father, but that doesn't mean he's necessarily our buddy. Because I can take advantage of my buddy if I wanted to right? Not something we should do with God. There should be reverence. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of something. Beginning of, beginning of wisdom. Thank you, Abby. Beginning of wisdom. The Decalogue. 
Israel gains perspective on what they're entering into, so they don't enter into this lightly. The next three chapters are the, what's called the Book of the Covenant. So here's all of the um, stipulations, laws, rules, stipulations that God is giving to His people, wanting them to follow these things. And so he covers with them in these chapters the proper use of altars. Interesting. He's got some thoughts about the altars where people will bring sacrifices. Um, I, I just think it's interesting. He wants uncut stones. Hmm. Till you remember the part in the New Testament that says God does not live in a temple made by human hands. Who made the natural cut stones? Or who made the natural stones? God. <laughs> he says, you know what? If you build an altar and you cut the stones, you might be able to say, I live there because of your great work. Tell you what I'm going to do. Don't cut the stones. Just stack them up. I made them that way. That's how I want them. We're not, I'm not living in a place made by human hands. Wow. I, I'm telling you have, you, have you read before God is holy? You read this? He's fleshing this out for you in, in these chapters. Treatment of servants. Hopefully you got to read that. You're supposed to treat them kindly and appropriately. Compensation for personal injury. He covers that. Protecting personal property. That's covered. Respecting your fellow man. He talks about that. How they are to dispense justice. All these things covered in how I want you to relate to me. Why? Because this is how God relates. He deals in holiness and um, he shows no favoritism. Uh, he deals in truth and yet it's balanced with love. Um, he's unbelievably holy. What, what do the angels who look upon him all the time, they're called seraphim, what do they cry out in Isaiah? Three times, holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is not us. He's not Superman, just a better version of us. He is completely other, holy God. And he's entering into a relationship with these people. Hmm. He's entering into a relationship with us, too. And yet, he's still three times holy. Hmm. He wants me, if I'm an Israelite, he wants me to come up and celebrate three annual feasts. In fact, he says, this is mandatory for you. Every year, you're going to come celebrate this, these three feasts. And then he says, very interesting, in chapter 23. Let me see if I can find it. Let's see, it goes through 33. Ah, here it is, verse 30. So this is, he says, if you obey me, my angel, 
by whom we probably should assume this is the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord will be there with you and will fight. And he talks about if you continue to show me loyalty and obey, then he will um, drive out, verse 28, I will send terror ahead of you to drive out the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals would multiply and threaten you. I will drive them out a little at a time until your population has increased enough to take possession of the land. How is God going to give them the promised land? A little bit at a time. A little bit at a time. That's their inheritance. He wants them to grow into it a little bit at a time. How are they supposed to live to, if you will, expand? Now, their, their inheritance has been defined. Remember, they're gonna, eventually they're going to cast lots. You remember all this. They cast lots, and they get certain geographical boundaries on their land, right? Remember all that. Well, they're gonna, they've got to press into all of this territory. They're not going to start off with it. How do they press into it? By demonstrating loyalty and obedience, reverence to God, walking in His ways. And he expands their territory, not, not the big boundaries, but the parts that they're in, little by little. The covenant then is accepted, chapter 24. Then the Lord instructed Moses, come up here to me and bring along Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of Israel's elders. All of you must worship from a distance. Only Moses is allowed to come near to the Lord. The others must not come near, and none of the other people are allowed to climb up the mountain with him. So Moses goes down and tells everybody, and they say, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. Then Moses carefully wrote down all the Lord's instructions. Early the next morning, Moses got up and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. He also set up 12 pillars, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he presents some burnt offerings and some peace offerings, which he's going to detail here in the next few chapters. Then he took the book of the covenant Okay, the book of the covenant that we just covered. He takes that and he reads it aloud to the people. Again, they all responded, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will obey. Then Moses took the blood from the basins and splattered it over the people, declaring, look, this blood confirms the covenant the Lord has made with you in giving you these instructions. Uh, and then these Fellows go up the mountain, and there they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. Anybody done much reading in the book of the Revelation? Guess what we find in the book of the Revelation? The throne is sitting on a blue lapis lazuli sea. Might be the same guy. Not sure. Probably. <laughs> and though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, He did not destroy them. 
In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. They had fellowship. If you were going to essentially put your feet under the table with somebody, you had fellowship with them. They're eating a meal with God. Wow. Please make note of two of the men who did this. Their names, Nadab and Abihu. They're going to show up a little while later in another book, and you are supposed to be stunned because these two bad boys were right here participating in this. You are meant to be shocked, whereas when you go, oh, yeah, Nadab and Abba, I don't know, Abba, Eba, oh, whatever, I'll just skip to the next paragraph. I know you. You just read fast. Here they are. And when you see Nadab and Abihu show up later, it should rock your world with what they've seen and what they do. So the oath of allegiance is taken, and then a solemn ceremony occurs, and then they share a covenant meal. Moses and Joshua then receive the signed, if you will, the signed covenant inscribed on stone tablets. So the Lord said to Moses, come up on the mountain, stay there, and I will give you the tablets of stone on which I have inscribed the instructions and commands so you can teach the people. So Moses and his assistant Joshua, oh, whoa, that's curious. Joshua is around, running around during this time. They set out, and they are going to go up and get the tablets. So Moses goes and gets the tablets, and so they get the signed document, so to speak. So God has entered into a formal, ratified covenant describing and defining their relationship as well as the blessings that will accrue to them if they are loyal and obey. Great chapters. Some summary thoughts. Mount Sinai is the place of adoption. It's a place where the children of Israel became heirs. By whose work? God's. They have an inheritance that God has given them because God decided to give it to them. Hold that thought for several months. We'll get to it. Yahweh has entered into a special, formal covenant relationship with those He redeemed from Egypt. It was ratified by blood on the altar. It was celebrated by a covenant meal. It requires their obedience for blessing. That's the shocker of Ephesians 1.3. They needed to obey to be blessed. You and I have been blessed, therefore obey. True freedom and fulfillment aren't found through living any way you want. They're only found through obeying God's Word. Am I to follow my heart today? No. Am I to follow my feelings today? No. Am I to 
do what is most convenient, easiest, um, safest, etc., etc., etc. No. What am I to do? I am to obey God's Word. I'm to obey it. If you want to have freedom and fulfillment, we need to obey God's Word. And you say, well, I do that. And I believe you for the most part as you would believe me for the most part. So let's look at some freedoms for the obedient. The freedom of a clear conscience before God and men. That's a freedom, to have a clear conscience, especially a clear conscience before God. Another freedom for the obedient, the freedom of a clear life purpose. Anybody know John 17.3? And this is eternal life. To know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. You want to know what eternal life is? That's what it is. That's why it begins now. To know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent is an eternity worth of learning. Well, we have a clear life purpose, as well as Ephesians 2.10. The freedom to know our ordinary lives will serve as a powerful witness to those who don't believe. Show and tell. Show. This is the show part. The freedom to know our ordinary lives will serve as a powerful witness to those who don't believe it. First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, 12. Dear friends, Peter says, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior, and they will give honor to God when He judges the world. 15 through 17. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves, so don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. How about the freedom of knowing we'll have answered prayer? Is that a good one? Yes. To know I have answered prayer. Now, that doesn't mean God will always say yes. Yes. No. Wait. Or I have something better in mind for you. Which could be kind of a subset of no. I'm not going to give you that, but I'm going to give you something better. 
But Psalm 66, back in the Old Testament, Psalm 66, Eighteen through twenty. If I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God did listen. He paid attention to my prayer. Praise God who did not ignore my prayer or withdraw his unfailing love from me. How can I make sure that I don't have my prayers answered? Don't confess sin. If I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Husbands, if any of you are listening and not watching the game, 1 Peter 3, I know you, 1 Peter 3, 7, uh, this one, husbands, we have great privileges, but we also have great responsibilities. In the same way, again, this is what Peter writes, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. Applies to me too. Husbands, this applies to us. That's the freedom for. What about the freedom from? The burden of having to strive to earn or keep your own salvation. Some of you may have lived through this burden, and I pray the Lord has brought you through the other side. There are some people who continue to struggle. Am I really saved? Did I really mean it? Etc. Well, God does not want you to live that way. There is no burden. The burden was born for you on the cross and proven at the resurrection. There is no more to pay. Not one cent left to pay. There is no burden. The Lord has taken it all. Hallelujah. The burden of having to strive to achieve your own success. Psalm 32, 8 and 9. I love these verses. Psalm 32, 8 and 9. I want you to listen carefully to this. Psalm 32, this is a psalm of David who has confessed... probably um, about his little thing with Bathsheba. He's finally confessed it. And this is what the Lord says to David following that confession. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bitten bridle to keep it under control. This is David, who's done something 
very bad. God has forgiven him. And what does God then promise David after he confesses? You need to read this slowly and carefully. God says this to David, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. Which pathway? Hmm. Do you believe that? What if the best pathway leads through the wilderness like it did for the children of Israel? What does God promise David? <laughs> this is the best. If there were a better one, I would have picked it for you. But there isn't, and this is the best. What else does God promise David? I will advise you and watch over you. Who is my advisor in this best pathway of life for me? God is. And who said, I will watch over you? By the way, I don't, he doesn't sleep. Maybe you've read that. I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. What is that? I got a horse and I got a mule. Ever seen a wild horse? What needs to happen to a wild horse before it can become useful? It needs to be broken. What about a mule? <laughs> Usually it's just sitting there. <laughs> it doesn't want to do anything. <laughs> you have to get it moving. Why would God pick these two little metaphors? Don't be like a wild horse and run ahead of me. I've got bits and bridles of which you know nothing about, and I will break you, as he did with Jacob. Touched his hip, and he says, Jacob, no more running. We're done. We're done running. Doink! <laughs> and now Jacob's going to walk with a limp the rest of his life. The Lord has ways and means. He cares for you, and for the best pathway of your life, He knows you cannot run ahead of Him. Anybody ever tried to run ahead of Him? Mm. All of a sudden, you're going to feel the bitten bridle in your mouth, and He's going to pull back. Whoa, 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 Bill. <laughs> whoa. What about the mule? Don't lag behind me. Walk with me. Don't get ahead of me. Don't lag behind me. Walk with me. I am going to lead you on the best pathway for your life. Wherever you are right now is the best pathway for your life. By whose doing? God's. What does he therefore deserve? Worship and thanks. And maybe I don't understand Daddy, why I'm here. I don't understand this. But I'll accept it from you that this is the best thing for me right now. And I don't want to get ahead of you, and I sure don't want to lag behind. I want to walk with you. Mm. 
I'm pretty sure our daddy will make sure we walk right next to him with an attitude like that. Freedom from the burden of having to strive to establish your own significance. Matthew 11. I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Yet even the least person, excuse me, the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. Are you kidding me? I mean, I look at John the Baptist as a hero, and he is. You want to know how significant you are? This is you he's talking about, and this is me. Of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Yet, even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. If you ever have thoughts of lacking significance, great truth to be reminded of. How about the burden of having to strive to provide for your own security? I think Cody used this one this morning from Matthew 6. But I don't have any clothes to wear. I don't have any food to eat. I don't have any shelter. (laughs) My father takes care of the flowers and the birds. Aren't you more important than they are? Yes. Who has said in Psalm 32 that they are going to guide and watch Do you think God doesn't know what you're facing today or tomorrow? If that's positionally true, then progressively, how should that work itself out today or tomorrow? Worship and thanksgiving and trust. There's a lot of freedom for us, a lot of freedom from other things. Well, how about you? How about me? Is there somewhere you're not experiencing true freedom and it's joy? Somewhere in your salvation, your success, your significance, or your security? What about like David, a matter of conscience? Is there somewhere you're not experiencing true fulfillment? You're struggling with purposelessness. What do you need to believe and obey this week? I don't know what it is for you. But wherever you're struggling, what's the truth that Jesus says, know the truth, believe the truth, and it will set you free from whatever you're struggling with, giving you a clear conscience, peace of mind, And knowing that you're walking with Abba on the best path for your life right now. For next time, read 25 through 40. We're going to spend the next two lessons on 25 through 40. 
of, of Exodus, of course. Exodus 25 through 40, and that'll wrap up Exodus. Two more lessons in the book of Exodus. It will be great. You don't want to miss either one of them. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your amazing plan, your unfailing love, your rich mercy, your amazing grace, your peace, your protection, your countless provisions. You love us, and that is so, such a mystery to us. But thank you for loving us. I pray that you'd make that um, come home for each of us this week in our mind and in our heart, um, that we wouldn't just know um, that we're, we're walking with you, um, but that we are genuinely your sons and daughters. Would you whisper from your spirit to ours and remind us this week of that truth, please? We love you, and we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.